anyway, but okay, I wanted to start off by asking, <laughs> um, basically, what do, you, what do you think has changed between the release of The Hardback when the book first came out and now, and that you can answer this question in a variety of ways. It could be politically, historically, culturally, personally, or all of those things. Right. Um, <laughs> so, agony of choice. Um, my answer is like a prose poem. Um, <laughs> no, okay, what, what has changed? Well... If anything. I mean, if maybe anything, it's all the yeah, same. Everything's exactly the same. Um, <laughs> the book... Like, I mean, the whole world's just gone really weird since the book came out. Like, it came out in the same week as, like, that news about David Cameron and that pig, and, like, everything that's happened <laughs> since has just been incredibly strange. Um, and, like, you know, now, like, maybe Donald Trump's going like, to blow up the sun or something, so this conversation's sort of largely academic. But, um, <laughs> along with everything else that we do. But, um, no, what's changed? Um, I mean, in terms of my own... Writing, um, really, I kind of saw this kind of as the end of a process mm -hmm. where I sort of fell into kind of being asked or expected to be some sort of trans spokesperson, stroke role model, stroke advocate. Um, I mean, a lot of the book, the book sort of became increasingly metatextual. That was the sort of thing that excited me most about writing it. Um, and that was the thing that excited me the most about publishing it through Verso because, you know, as a publisher, Verso, I think, you know, we're much more interested in the sort of power relations that I was discussing mm -hmm. and the way the media deals with kind of minorities, people from minorities, sort of issues around intersectionality. And, you know, in the book I talk about being, you know, a trans woman and writing about that, but being a sort of white, middle class, <coughs> fairly well-educated trans woman and, you know, sort of, at point trying to persuade editors to, um, you know, take on kind of more trans men or trans people of colour and, you know, sort of limited successes of that. Um, so a lot of the book sort of increasingly becomes a critique of, of mainstream media. Um, and it hasn't quite burned my bridges with that as much as I was hoping. Um, <laughs> you mean they still come calling? Sometimes, yeah, um, to my kind of surprise. But... Um, uh, I've sort of more or less sort of, you know, even as the book's come out, I sort of felt I've sort of tried to move away mm -hmm. from that. I mean, I, I sort of feel that, you know, there's there's a younger generation of, of kind of trans and non-binary sort of writers, artists, activists coming through. Um, like I finished the book when I was sort of 33 and I'm 35 now. And that doesn't maybe sound that old, but... Um, you know, sort of a, a young sort of trans or non-binary person, you know, <coughs> someone who's sort of 20s, 25, I think, would, wouldn't know a world probably even without social media, let alone a world yeah. without the internet. Um, and a lot of this book, I mean, it's sort of a positive history of the internet as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. um, that was actually really interesting to write, uh, sort of development from very, very early sort of GeoCities and Live Journal and places where, you know, coming from a place where there was no information on trans stuff for me at all as a sort of early teenager because of sort of Section 28 and the lack of the internet and um, and things like that. So, 
you know, I think anyone writing about trans from a sort of activistic sort of perspective now would have a completely different perspective to me. And I sort of feel as such that um, maybe the time is right for me to do something else and, you know, not take up that sort of space. I mean, you know, I think it's fair to say the mainstream media is littered with people whose uh, perspective maybe dates from a sort of a different era and, you know... If Jeremy Corbyn has achieved one thing, it's a sort of exposed, like, huge swathes of the British commentariat as living in 1996. But, um, yeah, so, for me, what's changed is a move towards writing uh, more kind of fiction mm -hmm. and actually still doing bits of journalism, but I've actually gone back to where I was about ten years ago, which is just writing about an Austrian experimental film that nobody <laughs> reads or watches. Um, Excellent. But slightly better paid now. <laughs> um, so, so yes, I'm still more interested in writing fiction now in the epilogue with, with Sheila Hetty is to talk about the uses of fiction. I sort of feel that, you know, sort of trans and non-binary voices are gaining ground um, in mainstream media and, you know, that has cons as well as pros. But um, I sort of feel that, you know, I've always been very, very interested in literary fiction. You know, my master's was in literature and visual culture. Mm -hmm. I'm now doing a PhD in creative and critical writing where I'm trying to produce a sort of volume of short stories that, that try and tell a kind of potted history of, of sort of the development of trans and, and non-binary identities uh, since the 19th century. It's quite interesting to do that through fiction. Um, I originally wanted to do that through non-fiction, but I kind of thought a lot of the questions around, um, you know, what constitutes sort of trans in its very broader sense... Um, which stories got told and sort of why would be would be very very contentious and maybe doing it through fiction, um, <coughs> you know, might allow a bit more space and not have to be so kind of literal, I guess. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a kind of constant theme in the in the memoir, which yeah, like you say, is has these kind of metatextual aspects. I mean, I can relate very well to your description of the nineties because mm. we're a similar age and and just that. Awful, weren't <laughs> I don't know. I sort of miss them now. I mean, you know, I, it's that thing of like, you know, not using the internet until you're 18 or something. And then, but even or then, your it was. mum needed the phone, yeah. Yeah, even then, it wasn't really a thing. It was a bit like teletext. Kind of, yeah, it was sort of, yeah, exactly. It was like CFAX or Citizens Band Radio or something. Yeah. It's something you'd like dip into occasionally rather than where we all live. <laughs> so, so the whole thing, you know, the whole relation to culture is of this sort of scarcity mm. or you know this like having to find things yeah, in a particular absolutely. kind of way which you describe really really well and you know the way things become these sort of hooks to hang mm. an identity on you know whereas perhaps now the situation is uh, you know where identities I mean are no less complicated but perhaps there's the language to describe them that is much more readily available and obviously that might come in for some critique by some people, you know, what does it mean if we have this kind of infinite <coughs> plethora of, like, uh, identifiers? Mm. And I thought there's... I was rereading the book today, and there's this very interesting bit where you're talking about early um, forums and chat, mm. chat rooms or, you know, um, d discussing trans issues, and you say, <coughs> I preferred the biographies of the photos, mm. you know, and there's this constant sort of tension throughout the memoir where you talk about the relationship between... <coughs> I guess the visual, the textual, and the existential. Right? Mm -hmm. Maybe that's putting it in a too uh, abstract way. But there's one line where you say, "Did I need to read more, write more, or live more?" Which I thought was like very. <laughs> Forgotten that. Yeah. yeah, but I think you know it's a kind of question for us all, right? And yeah. I, I think this kind of, um, 
<laughs> like trying to sort of choose between those things, mm. um, especially in the light of, you know, I guess a kind of, you know, amniotic soup of the internet, uh, like you say, where we all, where we all live. Um, I mean, one of the things I like a lot about the, the memoir is this, um, this sense of failure, actually, this sense of depression about mm. not being... Um, successful or perfect <laughs> that's not a criticism of you no, no. it's simply like the the honest admission actually that one will always fail in yeah. some ways and that um there may not be a kind of um an end goal or a happy <coughs> story that one can say and, and i think that in a sense is a much more interesting narrative than the idea that you can kind of change your life once and for all. And it, and it fits with how I think about feminism, you know, the feminism that pushes this line of, like, leaning in and being successful and, and all that. Like, perky, optimistic feminism is the worst. So, perky, <laughs> optimistic, anything's the worst. Well, exactly. So I was thinking a lot about Beckett and, and this, yeah, you know, yeah. and what it means to think about, like, sex and gender in, like, Beckettian terms. Yeah, I'm not sure I can give an answer to that, at least not in the it's allotted not really, time. Yeah. Um, but no, it's very interesting to kind of write about failure because yeah. I sort of feel that all writing fails, Yeah. Um, you know, in some sense or another, um, in that I think just the sort of the act of, of putting words onto a page is sort of inherently disappointing, I think. Like, you know, whenever I'm sort of... Uh, buy my book. Um, <laughs> whenever I'm, uh, you know, sort of conceiving... Um, Conceiving a project, you know, you have this idea for this sort of this piece of work that's going to sort of dart in all directions at once and be incredibly exciting, and then it's it's just like it's a printed page. It's mm. it's you know it's, it's it's something you see kind of every day. Um, but more, you know, I think any book that's written with sort of serious sort of social aims, you know, is never going to achieve maybe everything you set out to do. And and you know, I think it's good to. Um, you know, just remind yourself that you put something out into the world and you can't really predict what sort of life it's going to gonna take on. I remember being very struck by reading um, a very sort of social realist novel by uh, Upton Sinclair, mm -hmm. who wrote a book called The Jungle, which is all about um, a family of, like, Latvian uh, immigrants to the US in the late 19th century. And um, basically Upton Sinclair sort of conceived this as sort of potentially provoking a sort of revolution in the US because the sort of social conditions he was sort of describing, the working conditions, were so awful. Uh, and there was like a scene in a, like, um, I think it's called Jurgis, the protagonist, ends up working in a sausage factory. And Upton Sinclair very meticulously describes the process of making sausages and of working in this factory. And it basically, like, this book did lead to some sort of reform in, like, sausage-making <laughs> processes in the US, which, like, yeah, it wasn't... You know the <laughs> limit of what he was aiming for, but actually that's quite impressive, right? Like a novel <laughs> sort of leads to some sort of industrial reform. That's you know that's not a bad outcome. It's also a failure. Yeah. Um, and I sort of I sort of had that in mind when I was writing the book. I was mm. like, well, you know, I this probably isn't going to lead to kind of widespread changes in the way the media sort of typecasts minorities or you know only creates limited amounts of cultural space for minorities. Uh, you know, there's some of the things that are critique in the book. Um, but, you know, like since the hardback came out, a number of people have just written to me saying the book was really helpful to me at an individual level. And, like, you know, that's great. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, I mean for all our discussion of failure, I mean the book has been quite successful. More <laughs> I should know. Really. I should say yeah. that um, actually it has been like widely read and very well received. Yeah. And you know, I mean, th you know, there was. I went back to it today, but this long discussion in the London Review of Books that was triggered by an article. I don't know if people have read by um, Jacqueline Rose uh, from earlier in the year, from May this year, and. Um, you know where she where she looks at your book and the question of sort of trans narratives and um, I mean it's a kind of tries to frame your book in a historical context um, and I, I mean I wonder firstly what you made of Jacqueline Rose's um, take you know which is very uh, fl you know positive towards what you wrote um, and I think you know it triggered this long discussion in the letters pages um, where you had. Um, people, some people kind of worrying about, you know, trans discussions, I suppose, from a sort of radical feminist perspective and this debate around no platforming of Jermaine Greer and all of these sorts of things that we, we all know about. Um, and Jacqueline Rose's final comment, which I'm just going to read out because I think it's quite, quite, quite lovely. She says, arguments about whether trans women and men reinforce or disrupt conventional gender categories or whether trans women experience themselves the same way as non-trans feminists are futile. In the complex realm of human sexual life, no one should be deciding these matters for anyone else. You can, we should liberalise the law on behalf of oppressed groups, but you cannot legislate the unconscious. And I sort of thought it's very interesting, this idea of leaving open this kind of gap, really, as she does, I mean, per persistently in her work, you know, that we live in a world where there is, a, there is no room, in a sense, for ambivalence, mm. in some sense, you know, that, that everything is about a question of representation or legislation mm. um, or definition, you know, and what does it mean, actually, to sort of try and hold open this other space? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Not a question. <laughs> well, or sort of like a very vague question, sorry. Uh, yeah, I mean... Um, you know, the sort of intellectual background that Jacqueline Rose comes from is a sort of um, a strong interest in psychoanalysis yeah. and, uh, and feminism. And she actually supervised um, Dr. Vicky LeBeau, who was the person who ran the master's degree that I did. Uh, I did a literature and visual culture master's, but a huge chunk of the course was psychoanalysis, literature and film. Um, and, and, yeah, certainly the sort of spaces that psychoanalysis leaves open for... Um, like you say, yeah, ambiguity, a sort of building of sort of complex narratives and, and you know, maybe mm. accepting that there aren't easy resolutions to the questions that those sorts of narratives raise, that, you know, people's sort of preoccupations um, or behaviours raise. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very acute point. I mean, you could boil that down even more simply... Um, and, and talk about the way in which, um, you know, a lot of sort of trans activism, the trans and non-binary activism now, is just sort of saying, look, just accept our kind of autonomy, um, you know, um, the sort of right to self-definition, uh, which is sort of, you know, what what this particular sort of argument that you, you referenced is kind <coughs> of about, you know, sort of mm -hmm. trans and non-binary people saying, you know, accept our right to self-determination, other people saying no. Um, which is kind of, you know, ultimately fairly, you know, frustratingly intractable, really. Uh, you know, my writing certainly has always tried to find a way around that rather than arguing with it head-on, because I just think it just gets a bit brick wall. But, 
Um, yeah, no, I yeah. agree. I, there's a line where you say exactly, exactly this about um, wanting always to speak from this position of fairness, mm. in a way, which I think is very interesting. Um, you know, what does it mean to actually, yeah, avoid a kind of militant or polemical stance, mm. but again, like, hold open this position for, like, for narrative itself, for, you know, ambiguity, for, for yeah, you know, a non-correct response or a response that doesn't regard itself as kind of constantly right mm. about everything, <laughs> um, you know, which is one of the problems, I think. You know, one of the main issues, I guess, around the question of gender in a broader sense is that people are talking about it meaning very, very different things, you know, and that's the issue. So there is no, never going to be any compatibility between those who think that gender is something that is negative and imposed from the outside and that <laughs> negatively affects women, you know, as a subordinate class, and the discussion of gender as, uh, as an identity, as something playful or positive or whatever. And, th and that seems to be this intractability, or at least part of it. I mean, it's complicated. But yeah, it is complicated for sure, um, but... I mean, to sort of go back to something we kind of alluded to earlier in the mm. conversation um, and, and something you've mentioned there, which is sort of people using the word gender and kind of talking across purposes. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, there are certainly people who sort of talk about gender, uh, you know, in terms of kind of like male-female inequality and then some people talking about gender in terms of sort of spaces beyond or between, like, traditional ideas of male and female uh, and, you know, those approaches not only sort of sometimes talk at cross purposes, but, you know, actively clash. Um, you know, one of my big issues around this has always been sort of about the evolution of the language that we used to talk about, trans and non-binary, um, which, you know, certainly I think the sort of, you know, language that existed halfway through the sort of 20th century and remains a sort of popular lexicon to talk about it, like just isn't really that adequate. Um, mm -hmm. and, you know, I think that's one reason why a lot of the activism is really around terminology uh, and trying to sort of familiarise new terms and sort of ways of thinking that are behind them. Um, and, you know, you see a lot of the sort of arguments in mainstream media being around, you know, well, you can make up these terms if you want, but no one's going to use them. Um, and I always sort of respond by just talking about computers and, just saying, yeah, you know, there's a whole load of, like, new terminology that's come up around, <laughs> you know, computers and the internet. Yeah. And you don't get anyone going, oh, a mouse used to be such a lovely word, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Twitter used to mean something really nice, and now it just means people calling each other a dick. <laughs> um, you know, um... Yeah. So, you know, you sort of tease out the kind of ideology behind that sort of refusal of our language. Um, but, you know, it's one reason why I've always been quite interested in moving image, um, you know, in the book I sort of contrast sort of mainstream cinema approaches to sort of in particular transsexual people um, which usually employ like cisgender or like non-trans actors and have to sort of establish that the character is trans through a range of sort of, you know, quite stereotypical sort of tropes, you know, sort of taking the hormones, putting the lipstick on in the mirror if it's like male to female. Uh, you know, go and see the doctor, that kind of thing. And there's this whole strand of underground cinema that just put, you know, kind of people with more kind of gender-fluid identities in front of a camera, and, you know, you didn't have to do all of that because, you know, these people were just kind of being, and they're usually playing sort of some version of themselves mm -hmm. and 
largely kind of improvised, uh, which always struck me as a really interesting way around kind of written language and yeah, a sort of way of sort of portraying you know the kind of unconscious more directly, I guess. Um, yeah, I've always found that very interesting. Yeah, no, because I mean, obviously, there is you know quite a lot of debate at the moment about you know who is playing trans characters, mm -hmm. and I think like with the uh, I haven't seen it, but Laverne Cox playing Frankenfurter in the new, um, well, the new version of the Rocky right. Horror Picture Show, which yeah. is like, I guess, being received in a multiply controversial way. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I don't know if the, if it, you know, what we could conclude from any of that, other than there, you know, there's obviously a big call for trans people to play trans characters, mm. you know, which <coughs> obviously makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I think. You know, I mean, I mean, I mean, I'm always obsessed with this question of kind of visibility, I suppose, and what it means. But in a way, what you're sort of seems to me defending, or, or is an ambiguity of the visual, mm -hmm. actually, but that is also tied to identity. But it doesn't need to be spelled out in this narr boring narrative way that there is this one journey. Yeah, you know, that absolutely. you could just repeat. Um, I mean. Um you know, something I was sort of very conscious of because I've sort of, you know, done this narrative twice, so the Guardian series. You describe sort of, it as cannibalising yourself twice. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> kind of was. I mean, like, I did the Guardian series from yeah. 2010 to 12 because that was like a rolling block um, of the kind that you don't see that much anymore. No. Right? Blocking feels very kind of 2010, doesn't it? Yeah, even earlier. Um, even earlier, yeah, but yeah, yeah Kind definitely. of blogging crossing over into the mainstream feels very 2010. Yeah, and now everything's just a sort of mesh of like social media and comment pieces and actual mm -hmm. journalism and listicles and God knows what. But um, you know, back in the good old days, Dan, <laughs> uh, of twenty ten, <laughs> but um, yeah, um, back in the day, um, you know, sort of using this rolling blog format sort of tied me into telling the story in quite a linear way. Uh, but the excitement of it was was you know I sort of didn't know if it was going to conclude with a sort of traditional sort of surgical climax that you get in a lot of like transsexual memoirs um, because you know I might have just been like actually I'm kind of okay just like taking hormones but you know as it happened um, you know went through with with surgery and like wrote about it and the book grew out of that um, and then but it obviously starts it, with the with the it starts surgery with the Guardian article about the surgery and it starts with the headline. Yeah. And the sort of the date and the date of publication, um, which I had to sort of argue for actually um, to, to sort of publish it like that, um, because I wanted to set up that this was as much a book about the media as about mm -hmm. the transition itself and about the narratives that were told. Um, and then the book sort of you know jumps between ch longer chapters about you know my kind of personal life and then sort of shorter sort of theoretical or cultural kind of reflections um, that, you know, still rooted in my own life, but, but you know, aren't sort of directly autobiographical in that way. Um, and, yeah, you know, so if I'm telling the story again, then there was a need to sort of do something different with it, uh, which mm -hmm. partly allowed that sort of metatextuality that we talked about. Um, and I think also did call for some sort of structural experimentation, really. Uh, and, yes, yeah, so trying to sort of decentralise that narrative a bit. Um, I mean, I actually got asked by my editor, uh, the very patient and long-suffering Leo Hollis at 
at Verso uh, in one of the early conversations. He said, how do you want to structure this book? Mm. Uh, and I said, have you ever read The Unfortunates by B.S. Johnson? <laughs> he immediately like, put his fists on the table and said, no, absolutely not. Um, and Busted. for anyone who doesn't know, I know, I know, if anyone doesn't know that book, like B.S. Johnson wrote this novel where like, all the chapters are unbound in a box. Yeah. Um, and you just sort of throw them up and yeah, just random. Yeah, you sort of throw them up yeah. and just read them as they land, more or less, because the idea is that sort of life is random and, you know, things just sort of happen for no real reason. And it costs <laughs> publishers an inordinate amount of money and they sell about 200 copies and they hate it. <laughs> um, so I wasn't allowed to do that. But, um, it's quite close to that insofar as you're allowed to do anything like that. It does yeah, approximate absolutely. that to some yeah. degree, like quite extreme, you know. Because I think you're, you're trapped within a genre of the memoir yeah, and the sort of expectations of a particular kind of story, and I think it is subverted. At the same time, though, I've, we've discussed this before, I mean, you do have this very consistent voice in a certain mm. way, which I've described as mordantly rational, and also this <laughs> desire for a certain kind of constructed honesty, yeah. which is very interesting because, you know, like I teach critical writing, obviously, at the RCA, and... One of the problems that we always confront is this idea of like you can't write authentically if it's also artificial. Like if you're you know if you're attempting to construct an honest response or an emotional response. I mean it's a very obvious basic question about writing, but yeah. how do you actually you know write in such a way that you sound like you're not writing? Yeah, I mean this is it. I mean the process of sort of moving your thoughts from mm. your head to a page. Uh, and then from a page to publication, you know, is mediated on several levels by several people. Um, so, you know, you can't really... It's very hard to do anything spontaneous in writing. <laughs> the, the, nearest, the nearest attempts I've seen to a spontaneous, honest writing are the sort of surrealist yeah. attempts at automatic writing. So Andre Breton, Philippe Soupeau, people like that who were, you know, quite big influence on me, really, in my 20s. But their precept was that, you know, if you try to write in that sort of space where you sort of want to sleep but you haven't gone to sleep yet, I mean, that ignores the fact that, you know, sort of writing engages your brain in a way that's quite animating. But, you know, we'll leave that for now. Um, but, you know, that, that was the sort of moment where you would write in your most sort of unfiltered, unmediated way. Mm. And the results are really boring. Yeah. <laughs> um, <coughs> yeah. You know, there's the odd, like, nice sort of line or something, but, you know, it just looks like they couldn't be bothered to do another draft. And, um, you know, I pitched that to Verso, and they said no. And, um, <laughs> uh, you know, so there's sort of mediating, redrafting. Um, so all you can really do is sort of accept that if you're going to formulate your thoughts and experiences into a book, then there will be omissions, there will be... You know, things that you refine, and you know, there were lots of things in the first draft that didn't make the second, and um, you know, there are many, many different ways that you could shape the story, and then shaping the story and sort of creating myself as a character, you know, meant focusing on certain things at the expense of certain other things. Mm. I could have just as easily written a memoir about my relationship with music, although there's a lot of that in it. It is kind of is a memoir about your um, relationship with music. I could have very easily written a memoir about my relationship with football, and there's some yeah. of that in there as well. Definitely. Um, you know, there are infinite ways. Yeah, I think in the context of autofiction, if you think about people like Nausgaard and this kind of mm. discussion about autofiction, you know, it's very interesting when you talk about the fact that, because there's obviously reported conversations in the memoir, you know, which you obviously don't have an actual recording of. No. So you have to go back and kind of construct them mm. as, insofar, you know, as honestly as you can. And I think it's interesting you're saying that you actually contacted the people insofar as it was possible to ask them 
you know, to yeah. check with them whether this was a kind of accurate I mean, enough. That was what made this draft work. Actually. Yeah. This draft was written in about four months at the end of 2014, beginning of 2015. The previous draft was written over a much longer period. And it didn't work for two reasons. One, because it was trying to be very linear and sort of conventional in its sort of mm -hmm. structure, and actually that's not really me. It didn't feel sort of like an honest reflection of how I wanted mm -hmm. to write. But the second was that for some reason I kind of thought that, you know, it's a memoir, anything, including anything I didn't remember myself at the time, was <laughs> cheating, um, which is just <laughs> stupid. And, um, you know, I sort of handed in the first draft, and one of the problems was, you know, it felt quite kind of flat. It just wasn't alive, and I wasn't really a character in the book, really. Uh, and the threads weren't there. So I sort of went back and was like, okay, so start with the surgery, have this cross-cutting. Um, but then, you know, where do I start the actual narrative proper? And what sort of person am I? So I decided to start at university, because mm -hmm. that was the point where I got out of like, my really boring hometown and, you know, away from my family and could follow this well-worn kind of history of, like, LGBTQI people, like, moving to a big city and, you know, having more kind of freedom. Um, so I kind of went back there, so I was like, okay, what kind of person was I when I was 18? And, you know, I could remember you know, quite a lot of it, really, mm. you know, what sort of I was listening to, what I was reading, who my friends were, what I wanted to do with my life, that kind of thing. But the book really started to work when I started kind of calling up, like, really old friends and saying, look, I've written a newspaper column about my life and now I'm doing a book, so I hope this doesn't sound self-indulgent. We talk about me for, like, two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'm sort of reminded of a joke that a friend always tells me about like a pair of actors and there's one actor who's always talking about himself and then has like a moment of self-consciousness, <laughs> turns around to his friend and says, yeah, enough about me, let's talk about you, what do you think of me? <laughs> um, sort of fell like that. Um, but, you know, so I called up like really old friends and actually it was really good fun. Um, mm. And you sort of called them up and talked about, you know, sort of planned each chapter and which sort of bits of my life I would write about with specific incidences so called up friends in Manchester and talked about you know club nights we used to put on or the time my friend and I auditioned to be in 24 hour party people or um, whatever and, and the, the, the best conversations or some of the best conversations were with Joe Stretch who is the sort of main friendship in the book he's pretty much the only character who runs through more or less the whole thing apart from me and um this was really great fun, like the way we sort of constructed the dialogue. We would just talk on the phone for hours and we had a very long conversation, about three hours, I think, about when we sort of met in 2003. <coughs> and, you know, really minute things like kind of going to the student market together and which clothes we were looking at. And, you know, between us, we sort of promised each other to remember more and more. Um, and so we would talk about the conversations. So, like, one of my favourite bits in the book is where I come out to Joe as being about to go through sort of gender reassignment. And we've talked about my gender identity for years, and I've sent him writings I've done about gender identity. So this isn't a surprise, mm -hmm. really, but um, in the way that it was for some people. But he was sort of the third or fourth person, I told, I think. And um, actually, he was doing a book launch at Foils and I came <laughs> from, uh, from Brighton to, to see him. And he'd done the book launch by, um, basically, it was a novel called Wildlife. Uh, I don't know if anyone here was there or remembers it. Um, but basically, rather than read from the book, he like brought a sort of guitar with like a broken string and sung this sort of really ridiculous song about his sister's phone getting broken. It was this kind of like virtuoso anti-comedy performance that only I found funny. Um, <laughs> and of course, it meant that no one wanted to come and talk to him at the end. So, um, so we stood out, stood on Tottenham Court Road. He was having a cigarette, 
and you know, asked him how he was, and he was like, oh right, what have you been up to? I was like, well, um, so I sort of told him that I was going to go through this sort of process of, of gender reassignment, and Joe takes a drag on his cigarette. Um, I could just read this scene, actually. I've done <laughs> reading this in the book here. Um, it's in here somewhere. <laughs> I was going to say, do you remember which page anything's on? Roughly. Um, <laughs> it's, it's near here. Here we go. Um, I can't remember exactly where it is, but basically, um, Joe's first question is, will you still support Norwich? Um, and I said, no, Ipswich. Uh, and for anyone who doesn't follow, like, second-tier English football, like, Norwich and Ipswich have this really long-standing, pointless rivalry. Um, we hate each other. It's ridiculous. 40 miles away. But anyway, um, so I said, no, I support Ipswich. And I sort of paused and say, look, why wouldn't I support Norwich? And Joe just says, because you're shit. And I spoke to Joe about this on the phone. He just went, I don't think I said that, but leave it in, it's hilarious. Um, <laughs> and you're sort of inspired by Tony... I mean, I write a lot about, like, factory records of Joy Division New Order, sort of inspired by Tony Wilson saying, like, you know, if you have to choose between the truth and the myth, go with the myth. Um, but no, I mean, it's a memoir, so it has to be sort of poetically truthful. It does also have to sort of broadly stick to the facts, but I did feel some creative licence could be taken with the dialogue because I can't remember every conversation I had on a bus in Manchester in 2002. Uh, I can remember some of them, but... Um, I think poetically true is nice. Yeah, I mean... But, but I mean, I was sort of writing a lot about fiction and memoir at the moment. Yeah. And one of the big influences on this book is uh, Stone Butch Blues by Leslie Feinberg, which came out in... 1993, and um, you know some interesting parallels with with my book, partly because it was a strong influence. Like it's subtitled a novel, uh, so it's you know kind of declaring its own genre uh, in the title. But then there's a picture of Feinberg on the front. But much as my book has a sort of drawing of me by Joanna Walsh, like the Feinberg book has this um, sort of digitally processed image of Feinberg. So you are sort of you know removing or sort of fiction, like removing, distancing the reader. Sort of fictionalising that image to a point. But then in the back, there's a much more straight-up photo of Feinberg. And, um, you know, there's a sort of... The central character is called Jess Goldberg, which, you know, is a sort of like deliberately sort of thin pseudonym for Leslie Feinberg, so it's a similar name. Um, and, you know, the sort of the... Um, the synopsis of the book and the biography of the author are given on the back page, and they're very, very similar... Um, and it's sort of, it's not really autofiction as such. Mm-hmm. I think of autofiction as being like sort of Chris Krause, Sheila Hetty, mm-hmm. people like that, where the the whole sort of game is that the narrator protagonist shares the author's name, and you're sort of yeah. playing at what's real and what isn't. I couldn't do that with this book because it would have been utterly inappropriate. Because you know, if you're writing about sort of transphobia, sort of institutional, social, you know, you can't turn that into a game. Like it's just not appropriate. I don't think. Um, you know, in the the way that um, you know, I mean, obviously, several of those books we've just talked about do cross ethical lines, but you know, I felt that was an ethical line that I just didn't want to go anywhere near. Um, so, so you know, that was that was the one place I thought I did have a bit more kind of license was was with the sort of dialogue, as long as it was sort of you know fundamentally kind of honest. I mean, Joe and I were in hysterics about that conversation. It was very much how we do relate to each other. He did ask me, "Will you will you still support Norwich?" Um, and then, you know, once we'd sort of tied up that conversation, rather than then move on to the gender issue, he just said, do you think you'll get relegated? <laughs> and we did. Um, 
and um, and then we talked about it, and you know that was that was how it happened. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, and then so off the back of that, Joe would just periodically send me text messages or whatever, suggesting sort of how I might portray him in the book. <laughs> and I'd be sort of walking down the street or something, and I'd get like you know he'd know where I was in the books. We were talking about it all the time, and uh, I'd get these sort of messages saying things like, "In walked Joe Stretch, now an award-winning author, <laughs> ready to solve any problems that I or anyone else might have." And I was sort of looking at it, and laughing, and just about to reply, and another one comes in saying, "That sentence needs a full stop," said Joe helpfully. <laughs> uh, that that was my favourite bit of the book. I mean, there are other conversations where you know I I send anything where another person in my life appeared, you know, in any length. I sent them the chapters and just said, look, is this all right? Yeah. Um, and one friend wrote back and said, look, this is fine. It I would never wear peach. And I was like, well, that's what I wrote in my journal. What's wrong, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I definitely wouldn't. Uh, another one sort of wrote back and said, look, I don't think this really old friend of mine, known since about 16, I think, wrote back and said, look, I don't think this quite captures where we interact and, you know, I have these issues with it. So I said, why don't we go for lunch and then we could go back to my work on this scene together. So we just went and like, rewrote this sort of 2,000 word scene with the two of us, um, which is really good fun. Yeah. Um, and hopefully that comes across in the, those sort of sections. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right, I think I'm supposed to like um, open it up. Is that right? Yes. Sarah. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, yes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess if anyone wants to. They can ask questions. Yeah. They can ask questions. None of those, what's the, uh, this is more of a comment than a question. I don't think it's that kind of crowd. I, you know, we get better people than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but mind you, I just said loads of comments and not questions. But anyway, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's my, like, privilege. Sorry. Um, <laughs> does anyone want to ask Juliet a question? <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, with football, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. I'm not. I'm not a footballist. Yeah. <laughs> but I have been to a football game. And right. It's very masculine. And yeah. Kind of some of the negative parts of masculinity really come out in that crowd. I oh, right. Yeah. How has that changed for you? I guess post book or. Um. Do you, do you relate to it differently now? I mean, the in the, in the I've ended up doing a lot of activism around um, football and sort of LGBT. I mean, I talk about it a lot in the book. Um, I used to play for like a sort of LGBT football team in Brighton in the late noughties called the Brighton <coughs> Bandits. And, um, and out of that, we, we founded a campaign called the Justin Campaign after Justin Fashion, which um, sort of grew into like football v homophobia, biphobia, transphobia. Um, and it sort of led, you know, has helped to sort of contribute to a number of like LGBT supporters groups uh, growing up around the country, including one at uh, Norwich City where I'm a season ticket holder. Um, so I've actually been on the pitch a few times now. Um, more than like some of our players, I think. But, um, <laughs> has the mascot hugged you? I've high fived the mascot. What is it? It's Captain Canary. It's a canary, yeah. Um, there's a picture of me on the internet somewhere, like, high-fiving the, the mascot. Um, yeah, uh, football mascot obsession. Maybe the next book will be about that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, obviously, kind of being in the stands, um, it's quite a sort of weird experience. Like, um, 
I think like Nick Hornby I read when I was about 12, but he talks about, you know, being a sort of liberal football fan. It's sort of, you know, when you hear someone opening their mouth to hurl abuse at someone, it's hoping it's just a, like, nasty term of abuse rather than, like, a nasty racist or homophobic term of abuse or something. And, yeah, you know, um, to sort of relate to that. But, I mean, the people I sit with are actually, you know, generally people I know quite well. I've not really had any problems. Mm. And actually, like, Norwich, for some reason, get, like, 27,000 people in every game. Like, even playing, like, Burton Albion or something. Um... And you sort of, you just lose yourself in a crowd that big, really. I honestly think I'd have more problems if I went to see a much smaller team and I was a bit more kind of conspicuous. Um, but, you know, the sort of, the only way I've been able to reconcile myself with football culture, really, is to try really hard to, partly to change it, and also just to kind of write about it. I had a column in The New Humanist for a while called How to Watch Football. Um, and everyone was like, put the telly on, ha, ha, ha. But anyway. Um, or just, you know, buy a ticket. But, um... It was more about, yeah, sort of coming to football from this sort of position where in terms of sort of class and gender and sort of, you know, interests sort of maybe didn't fit the, the kind of profile of a typical football fan, but nonetheless really enjoyed the game and often enjoy the culture around it. And there's all these sort of, you know, moments where it sort of spills over into things that, you know, you find objectionable or unacceptable, like how you kind of deal with that. Um, but generally I found it to be fine. I mean, certainly, you know, things haven't really change with the book actually what I really like about going to football is the group of people I go to football with you know they have only a sort of passing interest in what I do kind of creatively and it's it's quite nice to to have a sort of different part of my life but of course coming out as trans or having to tell on my football mates I was transitioning you know it was difficult but actually they were they were brilliant and they were you know amongst my friends they were you know some of the warmest and kindest people so, mm. yeah. anyone else Sorry, I haven't read your book yet, but I really look forward to it. Um, I was just wondering if you've, uh, if you've um, what your thoughts are about uh, transparent Jill Solway's... Uh, oh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it either. Right. I was curious, like as a trans narrative, that's kind of presented... Yeah, um, I've, I've been really bad at watching things. You be, um, look, you made a decision about whether you should... No, you didn't even include watch more TV. It just says read more, write more, live more. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about watching more well, box sets. No, no. I mean, they weren't, I mean, I think I was about 20 or 21 <laughs> at the point I wrote that, and box sets weren't a thing. They're not even, like, actual box sets. Like They're just sort of things. Sets. They're just so sort of files. Huge. Yeah, I mean, you know, really unwieldy. Um, uh, I haven't actually got around to it. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's <nice. laughs> I should watch it. But got, there's too many like Austrian films from 1930. It's got a massive book about Austrian avant-garde film. Like, um, I want to watch all of it. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyone else? Yeah. Coming back to it in a way that's quite fun, really, because like we're just doing sort of several events. Rachel. About it. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Have um, you even reread it lately? Um, <laughs> yeah, because uh, we're serialising it for the Pigeonhole, uh, oh. which is um, an online 
uh, like reading platform where sort of chats. Do you look really happy there. you've just mentioned? Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean, I'm probably going to do you a horrible disservice in summarising <laughs> summarising your venture, but um, you know, sort of the chapters are published sort of sequentially, and you know, people can kind of read it. Uh, so I have had gone through the book again to provide a lot of extra material. Okay. Um, Quite a lot, yeah, like including, including, um, we were talking about failure earlier, including seven of my failed writing projects will be available in there. So if you want to read a play script that was rejected by a number of major theatres from 2005, then uh, that's the place to go, because no one else is going to get it. Um, All of this was just to set up this thing where people had to read your script. Yeah, basically. <laughs> See what you've done now. Surreptitiously <laughs> getting my old writing under the aegis of, um, of Sarah's, uh, Sarah's website. But, um, um, yeah, so I've gone through the book again uh, for that reason. Mm. Um, I mean, it's, it's kind of weird because, you know, I sort of said earlier, you know, you write something and then you kind of, you have to let go of it, really. Um, you know, and the book has been kind of making its way in the world for over a year now. Uh, and, you know, people have reviewed it and people have talked about it on the internet and maybe even not on the internet as well, who knows? But, um, <laughs> Possibly. Uh, no way of knowing, is there? But, um... <laughs> like, <laughs> there isn't, they don't all tweet about it, do they? Um, <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, I don't know, yeah, I mean, I do I do feel some distance from it, and I do, you know, I think I feel probably a lot more fond of it than I did, like, when I handed in the proofs, or, you know, even when the hardback came out, because, you know, the, the reception to it's been really much better than I was expecting, um, and not just kind of bigger than I was expecting as well, um, you know, I sort of, because, you know, I talk a lot in the the book about the sort of pressures of doing this in the mainstream media and some of the anxieties I had about, you know, being sort of positioned as a sort of spokesperson or something. And, and um, about poverty. <coughs> yeah. You know, I haven't um, mentioned, we haven't t- discussed that, but I mean, this is a lot about not having any money as yeah, well. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, basically living in this sort of way that the mainstream media, you know, over the last few years, I've said, like, this is how, like, people in their 20s live now. And I was like, mm. well, I lived like that through my 20s. It was the apparent boomians. Yeah. You know, just constant kind of like, you know, precarious house shares and like terrible jobs and, you know, looking back actually, yeah, I was sort of think about a lot of my writing evolved from like working for like places like Legal and General in Brighton where I worked for three years on like a temp contract mm. and, you know, sort of quite flexible with overtime. So I did writing and if I managed to, you know, get any writing commission and I'd do it and if I didn't I'd work extra at the office and of course now I'd be on a zero hours contract, so it would be even worse. But mm. um but yeah, you know, so so all that stuff's kind of in there, um, and you know, it's kind of interesting to to think about, um, you know, how the book is sort of still functioning as something that you know, sort of editors and commissioners will be like, oh yeah, like Juliet's written the trans memoir, like we should get her onto the radio to talk about this trans issue, and actually, I I say no to the overwhelming majority of it. Mm. Because um, it's just often like framed in a way that I just just don't want to to engage with. You know, I'll get an email from like a radio producer or something and saying, "Do you want to come on and talk about the comparisons that are being made between Rachel Dolezal and trans people?" <laughs> no thanks, um, and, and things like that. So you know, I do do say no to 
to most of it, and, and you know, a lot of that stuff's kind of calming down now, and I sort of feel like the book's out, it's kind of, you know, done most of what I wanted to do, I think, and, you know, I, I think it's as good as I could have got it, so, yeah, I mean, we talked earlier about the limitations of the memoir, and it's quite nicely working in fiction now, because mm. that genre is just a lot more malleable, you can, you know, I mean, I'm working on a volume of, yeah, short stories now, and, you know, these include kind of invented diaries, um, sort of invented film scripts with cover letters. Um, Short stories know. also not a type of writing that will ever make you much money. <laughs> yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I, mean I mean that positively. I <laughs> said earlier, like, I'm in my sort of mid-30s now. Uh, sort of beyond worrying. And the other thing, right, is that, like, you know, just to talk a little bit more about journalism and economics. Like, yeah. When I was 20, it was like 2002, I was kind of, you know, interested in music and writing and film, and I kind of, you know, made a sort of, sort of, you know, vague decision as a second-year undergrad to focus on writing, and my plan was to, you know, do, like, arts journalism or something, mm. uh, to make enough money to sort of fund the sort of, you know, weird short fiction that I wanted to write, and, you know, I had a sort of litany of fairly obscure kind of writers I was already kind of getting into, and, you know, um, I didn't really imagine writing a book that would sort of, you know, be as sort of commercially well received as this one has, but because um, the sort of writers I sort of like mostly didn't. But you know, in two thousand and two, that looked like a sort of plausible model. Um, you know, write for sort of tabloids, mag- uh, broadsheets, magazines, maybe tabloids. Who knows? But um, you know, I might want a football column. But um, <laughs> they used to. Do. But um, you know, that's some like, you know yeah. other stuff on the side, and that seems sort of plausible. Uh, and of course, you know, by the time I actually sort of broke into mainstream journalism in the sort of turn of the decade, journalism was like poetry or something. You know, like, um, <coughs> you know, the overwhelming majority, if you think back to the sort of popular sort of bloggers who were sort of crossing over, um, you know, partly through, uh, you know, things like Zero Books, so, yep. you know, sort of circle like you, Mark Fisher, Owen Hathaway, uh, Douglas Murphy. Um, you know, the overwhelming majority of those writers had, like, some sort of day job or other. And, yeah. you know, if we were lucky, it was in, like, a university or something, you know, <laughs> sort of intellectually simulating. Or, you know, in my case, I was, like, a receptionist for the NHS for, like, six years. Um, and, you know, there were a handful of, you know, people who you thought were doing really, really well and were everywhere all the time were maybe just scraping by and, you know, again, living in this sort of... <coughs> various conditions that we've talked about mm. um, but you know even the sort of really big names were only just getting by from writing and you know had to be sort of constantly promoting themselves on Twitter and we're getting lots of opprobrium because if you're everywhere all the time like that people assume you're doing really well yeah. and that it's fair games just kind of yell at you all the time um, and all the rest of us have day jobs um, so sort of one reason for sort of moving away from um, from journalism was like well look I'm not doing this because it's like the thing I love the most. I'm doing it because I enjoy it enough and it has enough sort of to keep me interested but you know also lets you do the things I really want to do. But um it just took over because I thought I'm gonna actually, you know, support myself through this. Yeah. Then um I would just have to do loads of it and write about things that other people have heard of and like. Um which, you know, as we've seen tonight is you know it's a problem <laughs> for me. But um Yeah, I mean so you know, I've sort of managed to get onto a PhD programme yeah. to write this particular short fiction. I figure I'll just sort of get to the end of it 
and work out what to do then. And I mean, you know, the world has sort of changed so much in the last kind of 10 years or so that actually like having a secure PhD place for like three years looks like relatively secure, you know. Yeah. Um, no, it's good. It's impressive. Um, all right, I'm not sure what time. More, yeah, question? question? Oh, yeah, go on. Oh, what? Sorry, one, more. One, one more. One more, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, oh, time for one more. Oh, right, okay. You can ask it if you want, but... <laughs> <laughs> we'll see if you have any more. Any questions about Norwich or... Uh, yeah, please. Austrian, Austrian film from 1930s. If you can film. find a question that involves both, I'll be <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Um, thanks so much. It's amazing. Like, just really, <laughs> it was so good. Like, um, All sorts of questions. <laughs> 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 and, um, and I, w I wanted to ask what... Um, you talked a lot about your... Um, expression of the subconscious mm. in terms of um, um, expressing it on paper, and obviously that's such a like that could be, and it does mean so much, and um, yeah, like obviously very interested in the intersection of that with identity experience because my only experience of that is um, non-binary, and that's all about the subconscious identity splintering and so forth, mm. and so forth, and and the way that I. The way that I kind of um, manage it is by writing very kind of like um, practical, almost poetry, um, and it just reminded me of that kind of way of expressing and, and yeah. But Lucy, what did you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, you know, we talked earlier about sort of ambivalence and ambiguity, and um, yeah, it's. Um, I mean, like I said earlier, I do feel that. Um, you know, I mean, the reason why a lot of trans and non-binary people have been so focused on, on terminology is because the language as it stood wasn't really adequate for these modes of expression. The language that we receive definitely wasn't adequate. Um, you know, and that's that's not an accident. I don't think that's you know that's ideological and political. Um, I mean, in terms of. I mean, one of the biggest problems I've had actually writing about this is that the actual, the actual sensation of, of gender dysphoria, and particularly the moment where I realised that you know that was something that was going on with me, and I think it was something that other people picked up on before I did when I was a you know young child, and you know I just found like you know, sort of groups of guys always sort of you know seemed a bit sceptical of me or you know sort of took the piss out of the way sort of you know spoke or moved or whatever, and you know these little indicators of, of sort of gender conformity or not um, that, you know, was sort of lost on me but other people picking up on. Um, but, you know, the actual sort of existential sensation of, of gender dysphoria was like sort of physical pain. It was something I couldn't really adequately put into words. I mean, I guess if I could, then other people would feel it too, right? And, you know, I'd, like, bring my book out and those people were like, you made my, you know friend or family member or spouse trans my job <laughs> um, um, and you know sadly I can't do that um, not for one I'm trying um, you don't know that you might might have you might have done that maybe yeah I don't know I'm sure you know maybe if they're just book, not on Twitter but does really well then there might be someone on hand to accuse me of doing that <laughs> Daily Mail editor if anyone wants to pitch that I'd be delighted you <laughs> should pitch it yourself under a pseudonym I'm so great. Course, yeah great then write a story about it. I used to write like fake letters to the Daily Mail under the name of Christian Buckingham. 
<laughs> just resurrect the name. Sort of pretended to agree with the editorial position, then just sort of tore it down at the end. <laughs> several letters about Brassai in 2001. But, um, <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, uh, so sort of conveying, you know, that really crucial experience sort of eluded me in language, really. Um, so that was a big problem. So, you know, I sort of feel a lot of the time sort of describing the practical steps that I wanted to take, and, you know, because I was a transsexual rather than, you know, a non-binary position, uh, it's slightly easier to describe. Um, but, yeah, I mean, it was very, very difficult. Uh, I mean, in the book I write so several times about dreams, and that's always been something I've been very interested in, uh, you know, as a sort of manifestation of the, the unconscious, um, and, you know, sort of things you've repressed and so forth. Uh, you know, I've always been very interested in sort of Freud and Lacan and, and psychoanalysis, um, and some of that does come into come into the book, and there's quite a lot of books about psychotherapy as well, and sort of things that are opened up by that. So yeah, I mean that was that was how I sort of tried to deal with it really, sort of couching it into the practical things I did in my life and the sort of less conscious things that it brought up. But but yeah, I don't think it's ever possible to do that entirely to my own satisfaction. Yeah. All righty. You have to, um, have to sign, sign books. books and stuff. <laughs> um, thank you, everyone. Thank you.